To the church, I want to mention that I love Proverbs, and there are, there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, so there's always a chapter equivalent to the today's date on the calendar, and I always pick one verse out of today's date of the calendar and share that. So today being the 19th, I chose uh, out of chapter 19, verse 20. If you listen to advice and are willing to learn, one day you'll be wise. That's a good deal. <laughs> Now, actually, we've been in a series over the last several weeks that I've taken from the book of Proverbs, so we spent a lot of time in Proverbs recently, and today's the last in that series. Um, the title of the series has been The Successful Family, and uh, it's, we've been looking at a lot of Proverbs. Proverbs is mostly written by a guy named Solomon. We know him as King Solomon, and the Bible says he was the wisest man who ever lived, and so um, there are a lot of things, observations in, in the book of Proverbs about life. And there's, there's no real single theme in the book of Proverbs. It's kind of a lots of different things, and, and a lot of, uh, it's kind of all, all over the map. There are dichotomies, comparisons. They compare, there are a lot of comparisons in, in the book of Proverbs. And uh, the primary dichotomy, I think, if you look in there, is wisdom versus foolishness. You see that all over. Um, we've spent a lot of time on that. And just to, to review for us, let's remember what wisdom is. We've defined wisdom as the ability to make the most God-honoring choice in any situation. That's what we want. The ability to see and do the most God-honoring thing in any situation. And, and we contrast wisdom with foolishness, which we would say is the stubborn refusal to do what wisdom dictates. Okay? Pretty simple. Uh, foolishness is marked by this inability to figure out what it's going to cost you, what's going what's to be the downside. And so wisdom versus foolishness is probably the primary dichotomy in, in Proverbs. But there are other ones, uh, truth versus deceit. See that in there? Pride versus humility. Those are different roads to take. And so truth and deceit, pride and humility. Stubbornness versus being teachable. See that a lot in there. Pretty big, you know. Are you stubborn? Are you teachable? I mean, these are all areas for us to look and go, oh, where, where do I fall in that spectrum? Moral versus immoral. Today I want to look at another one of the very main themes and uh, pretty commonly throughout the book, and that's the, the, the work versus laziness. Diligent, being the, being, being the diligent one versus this word sluggard, which I'd never heard before except reading in the Bible. Nobody says sluggard anymore. Um, there was a cartoon about a guy named Sluggo, but I don't know how that relates. Anyway, hard work versus laziness versus passiveness versus indifference and all the things that go with that. And the Lord said, let there be light, and light came on. Thank you for the light. So today, the wise family works hard. The wise family works hard. So we're going to start in Proverbs 18. What, what we're going to do a little bit today is we're going to do like a 30,000-foot flyover of, of some of the topics that we've been over in the last several weeks, although I'm not, it's not really a review so much, but we're going to see how working hard at those different areas. And today we're going to be looking at, how, at several, several ways to work hard. And the first one of those is going to be the wise family works hard at marriage. Now, maybe you can think of somebody you know who has a really good marriage, and what, what might looks to you, look, look to you from a distance as something that just happens and it's kind of easy, you know, the fact is, if they've got a good marriage, they're working hard at it. You may not see that, but that's how you get a good marriage, by working hard at it. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This is uh, one of a lot of verses in Proverbs that that talk about the benefits of, of one man and one woman 
for a lifetime. And, and that's what God had in mind when he thought up and, and ordained the institution of marriage, this, this lifetime of, of mutual, selfless, other-prioritizing, other joy-producing love. This, this plan. And, and notice that he, he says in the text, he who finds, that's a man who finds a wife or a woman who finds a husband for this lifetime of the mutual, selfless, other prioritizing, joy producing love that happens. And it's good. It's, it says it's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. You know, somebody who's got a thing, you see a couple and they got a thing going. You know, it's, it's good. It's good. It's good to have a thing. Um, and it goes on, it says, he who finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Don't blow past that. God's, that's God's favor. The, the favor of the creator of the universe says, hey, I'm going to give my favor here. You like it when you go to work and somehow you have the favor of the boss. Or you're in a class and you have the favor of the teacher. It's good to have the favor of some sort of covering. Having the favor of God is a good thing. Wouldn't you agree? That's a, that's a very good thing. And, and what is God's favor like? I mean, how, how can we describe it? You know, there's, there's a, a blessing that's common. It's found in the book of Numbers uh, where, where it says, May the Lord bless and keep you. May his eyes shine upon you and his countenance upon you. I mean, really, really good stuff. That, that his countenance would somehow lift and, and it, would land on, it would land on us and give us peace. God's favor is a good thing. And when you find something like that, you know, it's something to be treasured. It's something to be valued and honored. And it's something to be worked at, to be worked at. You know, some people think that, you know, finding a wife or finding a husband is kind of like you're finding, you're walking along and you happen to find a $20 bill on the ground or you, you, find, you found a really good deal at Target, okay? Is that what you think that finding a good wife is like? Do you find a good deal? I mean, I mean, have you ever noticed, guys, now, I'm sorry, ladies, but uh, this is kind of, I chuckle about this, but if you compliment a woman on anything she's wearing, the chances are almost 100% she's going to tell you the price and where she got it. Have you noticed that? Hey, I really kind of like those shoes. Ah, $15 at Ross. Well, you're a good shopper too, but the, the shoes are cool. I mean, it's like, okay, that's not funny. The ladies don't think that's funny, but guys, okay, I'm just saying it's true. You know, I mean, you don't find a good wife at Target. I mean, well, you could, I suppose, but I mean, it's not like you, you found this really great deal and so you've leapt on it. It's, it's, um, it better be, better be more than just that, right? There's got to be something more to it. If, 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 and by the way, if you haven't found that right person yet, be patient. Wait. Wait for the right person. Better that you wait a lifetime, if that's what it takes for the right person, than to be married to the wrong person. I just want to say that. You know, I suppose that's a rabbit trail. I don't want to go down. But once you've found that person, and you're on the other side of the marriage ceremony, and you're on the other side of those commitments that you made to God... That is God's person for you. So work at it. Work at it. And make no mistake, it takes work. If you want a strong marriage, you have to work at it. Proverbs 18.9 says, Whoever is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. Of course, this scripture is first and foremost talking about us in, in the marketplace, but it has other application beyond that. Whoever, this word slack it's the idea of sinking down to a lower level. I mean, it's, it's letting things get weak. It's procrastinating. It's putting things off for another day. So if we 
view that scripture in the case of marriage. Whoever is slack in his marriage is brother to him who destroys. Now, that word destroys there is the exact same word that you find in Exodus 12, 13, which is the story... The, the kids of Israel, the children, are in, in, in Egypt, and they're, they're about to break out. These plagues have been going on, and the Lord has given them instructions, saying, destruction is coming. The firstborn are going to die. And here in, 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 uh, in that particular verse where it's the exact same word, he's saying, you know, but, but the blood on your, on your doorposts, basically, is going when, to, when, when, when I see the blood, destruction will pass by. That's the same word. Whoever is slack is brother to him who destroys. It's speaking of the, the destructive nature of neglecting your marriage. And catch this. Uh, this is strong words. If you are neglecting your marriage, do you see who your wingman is here? It's not good. If, if you know that not, your spouse needs attention, if you know that your, your spouse needs affection and you don't give it, your brother to the destroyer. If, if you know your relationship needs reconciliation and you don't pursue it, if, if you know there's forgiveness needed or, or there's anything needed and you don't give it, if you're slack about that, your wingman is the destroyer. That's not good. That's just not good. Whoever is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. And you might think, think, and accurately so, that, yeah, but Terry, I, I get what you're saying, but this marriage, this is really hard right now. Oh, this is really hard now. Listen to this, this summary from a survey. I'll just, I'm just going to read it to you. Divorce does not lead to happiness. A study entitled, Divorce, Does Divorce Make People Happy? Okay, found that most people who get divorced are no happier five years later. On the other hand, 78% of the couples who are the most unhappy in their marriage and yet decided to stay together, 78% reported five, year la- five years later they were now happily married. Thus, if you want to find true relational happiness, you have a much better chance if you stay with your current spouse and work it out. Work it out. Turn to your neighbor and say, work it out. Work it out. You give it your best. You don't give up. This is God's purpose for you. And, 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 and I want to say again, for those of you who are waiting, you know, you wait patiently. Choose wisely. Don't, don't get caught up in some emotional train leaving the station. Stay objective and, and listen to the voice of the king and, and, and to the po- voice of people around you that, that are talking to the Lord that will help you make a godly choice. Okay, so, the, so the, 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 we've talked about that one. Second one is the wise family works hard at parenting. Now, I spent a, lot of, I spent a whole Sunday on parenting, I'm, I'm, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now, but I, I will read a couple, review a couple of ways. Verse uh, 29 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Remember, we talked about some tools, four tools that we talked about for training your children. The first one was, is the rod, and that's referencing spanking, basically. And, and we believe that spanking is, is appropriate for children ages maybe two to five um, and uh, maybe sparingly be between six and eight. By the time you get to 10, it probably is never happening at all. And it is never, never to be used in anger. Never. Everybody say never. 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 Good. Never, ever, ever in anger. Second, a second tool that the Lord gives us is reproof. And that's, you know, that's your big parent face, you know, don't you ever do that again. I mean, I'm so disappointed in you. And that works at a certain stage in life. It doesn't work as children get older. And um, 
it's, um, it's something Scripture says, raise up a child. You know, there is a season. You have a season to raise your children, and there's a season that that works well. Um, use that while you can. Then, then a third one is removal of freedom. In our family, we would call that being grounded, okay? And the idea there is, is that you take some freedom away from them. Why do you do that? Well, freedom is a privilege. It's, it's something that you should be metering out and you give them enough freedom that they can learn responsibility, but not so much freedom that they can ruin their life by a big mistake. So if they do well, you give them a little more. If they don't do so well, you give them a little, you take a little bit back in. Your point there is to teach them how to handle that responsibility wisely and, um, and vice versa. Fourth tool is responsibility. Work. Chores. Things you do around the, the house. And, and you know, are we, we talking about for pay? No. We're talking about for being part of the family. It's, it's, this is a room full of adults now. How many of you have no responsibility? Or let's me say this. How many of you have responsibility? You've got a bill to pay. You have to someplace you have to go. People that you're responsible. It's life. Responsibility is life. The idea that we should take those last handful of years that they're under our care and take responsibilities away from them. And I'm talking about adolescence is... Um, it's harmful to children to think that that is a representation of where they're going to be just in a couple of years. Train your children by getting some responsibilities on their shoulders. The Wise family trains their children, and by the definition that we used of parental training was this. Parental training is applying and amplifying the consequences of wrong choices before the consequences are big enough to scar their life. In other words, you artificially I, you amplify the consequences to what they've done wrong now because you want them to learn the lesson now. You don't want them to have to learn the lesson later when it is destroying their life. So, your five-year-old son lies to you. Hey, Ben, did you make your bed? Yes, I did, Dad. Well, let's go find out. Let's go check. We get there. Hey, bed's not made. You lied to me. How big a deal is it that the bed's not made? I mean, in the light of eternity, probably not going to make too much difference in anybody's soul, right? You agree? But I'm a parent, and I'm thinking, I know where lying goes. I know where this is headed in his life. So i got to do something now to make this the bigger issue. My father did that pretty well. Um, you know, I, I, I learned when I could figure things out that you're way better off to take your lumps for what you've done because you, you get caught. I mean, the lying never, it never protects you. And if, you know, it's like the three strikes you're out rule. It was like, if, if, if I lied, it was way worse than whatever I had done. Significantly worse. Hugely worse. Eternally worse. My father taught me, just don't lie to me. That was so much worse to him than whatever it was that I had done, you know, pulling my sister's hair. And every little boy knows that their sister's hair needs to be pulled occasionally. It's a healthy thing. They need their hair pulled. But, I mean, lying about it, there's just no, don't go there. I mean, it just, just don't go there. Just do not go there. So when your 10-year-old spouts out and shows disrespect for authority, where is the disrespect for authority going to take that child later? What happens when that disres disrespect for authority happens in high school to their teacher or their principal? 
What happens when they get pulled over for speeding and they decide to be disrespectful? What happens in the future when they decide to be disrespectful to someone in a job interview or their boss? What's going to be the consequences then? Huge. So, at 10, when your 10-year-old is disrespectful, you amplify the consequences now and teach proper respect for authority now. Not because you've been assaulted, but because of where it takes them. And when your 15-year-old starts to make choices about the wrong kind of choices about their friends or even the kind of music that they listen to or their priorities, and in your soul you're thinking, oh, this is not good, it's not healthy. You do something about it. You do make a deal out of it because they are choosing their identity. They are choosing their culture. They are choosing their future. And even at 15, I'm sorry for 15-year-olds that are in the room, But even at 15, they don't always see the path that those decisions will take them on. And they can become so hurt and wounded later. Stakes are big. You've got to step in, parents. So you apply and you amplify the consequences of those choices before the consequences are big enough to scar their lives. That's basically the essence of parenting. That's basically it. So, And notice the consequences of not doing that um, in Proverbs 29 and 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, which is the goal of training. But a child left to himself, that word left to himself literally means sent away. You might say, well, who sends their child away? I would never send my child away. A lot of people do. More than you think. Their children are sent away without training. They're sent away without correction. They're sent away without instruction or without discipline. So this child left to himself, sent away, by the way, children know that they need guidance. They know that they, have, that, they, that, they, that they need a path. They know that they need a way to live. And they're looking for one. As they get into adolescence, they start looking for a path, a way to be a person, and, and they will find one. And if you don't show them one, the world will show them one, and they will make a choice. And you may not like the choice that they make. So as a parent, you try to establish that for them and with them. A child left to himself brings, it goes on, it says, brings shame to his mother. Other Proverbs talk about this, say, is the, is the ruin of his father or brings grief to his father. And there is a terrific biblical portrait of this happening um, in 1 Samuel, which is an um, Old Testament book, and it's talking about this guy named Eli who was a priest and um, at that time, being a priest, it was a hereditary. It was a certain tribe were the priests. And, and so Eli is a priest, and now his sons are priests. And uh, there's trouble, trouble in River City, and we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12. I'm going to just kind of flip down through some verses, only because um, I want us to keep moving along. So verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Wow. <laughs> They did not know the Lord, which is a fascinating sermon. There's a, there's a rabbit trail for us. These guys are priests, and they don't know God. Scary. Um, I'm going to move on, though. That's, that, that hook is too big. I'm not going to get hooked on that and go somewhere on that. Verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Here's literally what was going on. People would bring an offering to God, and it would be you know, a, an animal sacrifice, and there was a way that it was handled. The Lord said, here's how you ha- process this offering. And a portion of that process of that offering was, would be a provision to the priests. 
That's, that was the priest's job, and that was their livelihood, and so that's how they got food to eat, in part. And the Lord told them how to do it. Well, the offering, this particular offering was prescribed, you would actually boil the meat. And at a certain point, the priest would come in with an implement, it was kind of like a fork, and he would jam his fork into the pot, and whatever came out, that would, he'd take that home, and that would be dinner for his family. Okay? Boiled beef, whatever. I mean, I'm sure it was really good. <laughs> but these guys were going to the people and saying, hey, God is not going to honor your sacrifice. You need to give us that part right there, and it needs to be raw so that they could take it home and barbecue it. That's basically what was going, that's basically what was going on there. They, they, were, they were improperly directing these people to worship God wrong in a way that dishonored God to their benefit. It was terrible. These are priests that don't know, don't know the Lord, and um, not a good thing. This is not a good thing at all. It's terrible. Verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. So he knew. Daddy knew. Doing all, uh, and, uh, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Okay, so now they're sleeping with the, the girls at church. This is getting worse. These are guys who have not been shaped when they were younger and more shapeable, and now they're less restrained, and it's getting worse. And frankly, God's pretty upset about all this. And so now God decides to challenge Eli in um, verse 29, and, and here's God talking to Eli. Now you can attach to this, this, this sentence whatever tone of voice that works for you. I'm going to attach the tone that I believe. Why did you scorn my offerings and my sacrifices that I commanded for my dwelling? Why did you honor your sons above me? There were times that I would read that sentence and I would think, why did you do? I think that's how the world would want to portray the voice of God. I don't think so. I think there's a broken-hearted father here going, why? I never treated you this way. Why? You did What? Well, I was putting my kids above God. I was, didn't want to correct them and wanted them to like me. And that's so bad. It's so terrible because the, this story goes on in the next chapter, uh, 3, verse 13. And God says, And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that you knew about it. Because It says, Because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. I believe, this is my opinion, I can make a good case for this, but I want to make doctrine out of this. But I believe that the number one way to guarantee that your children will not follow God is passive parenting. You walk and proclaim to be a Christian, and you go to church and you do the right things, but you're passive as a parent, and you let them go their own way. You don't do anything. You don't step in and you know, here's Eli. He didn't even step in and try. He didn't try to block them. He didn't hold them back. He didn't correct them. He didn't do anything. And God judged him for that. What, what, what excuse could Eli give us that would satisfy us for why he didn't? What if he said, well, well, I was busy serving God. Would we say, oh, well, as long as you're serving God, it'll be okay because you were serving God. No, none of us would go with that. Or what if he said, well, I was balancing my checkbook. I've got to keep my finances in order. Would we, any of us say, 
Okay, it's okay that your kids blaspheme God because but at least your checkbook's a balance. That's good. Nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody would say, no, it's okay. You let your kids go over the cliff as long as your checkbook's good, right? No, nobody would say that. C- can you think of a single reason that Eli might give for not restraining his kids that would satisfy us? No. Parenting is a lot of work. <laughs> but be encouraged. You know, you do that hard work and that responsibility. It's a season of life and you give yourself to it. The wise family works hard at parenting. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. You know, it's a myth that, that some parents want godly, mature children and some parents don't want it. That's a myth. You know, that, that some parents want their kids to grow up and love God and want them to be mature and follow Christ, but other parents, that's not a big deal to them. They, they don't want it. That's, I, I really believe that's a myth. I really think that everybody wants their kids to grow up mature, loving, godly, well-adjusted people. But some people just aren't willing to work for it. And that's why it says here, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. I mean, I, I really want my kids to work out well, and, but I still, I still want to do the work at it. I, I don't want to pour myself into it. I, I don't want to go through all you have to go through. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I, I don't want to have the difficult conversations. The soul of the sluggard, sluggard craves. He wants the same thing, but he gets nothing. But notice, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied, the person who gets what he wants righteously, is the person who works at it. You have to work at it. You've got to work at parenting. It's a season. Give yourselves to it. The wise family works hard at parenting. Number three, the wise family works hard at financial management. Proverbs thirteen eleven says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. You know, there's an example. One-third, did you know this? One-third of all lottery winners end up bankrupt. Way higher than the percentage of people who are not lottery winners. A third end up bankrupt. Because money made through you know, shortcuts does not come coupled with the wisdom to learn how to manage the money. Do you catch that? I mean, when, when the windfall comes, it's great, feels good, but you really don't have the skill set to manage the money. It can be really, really destructive. And notice the Bible here does not condemn gathering money. It's not saying having money is bad. It doesn't say that at all. It says, you know, obviously to gather it dishonestly or hastily. But it says, whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And gathering it a little bit by little bit takes work. It takes time, takes effort, takes self-control, takes patience. And God wants us to work at it. You know, and I, I, I've whined before about this. I've heard other people whine, well, why doesn't God just make life easier for us? Why doesn't God just kind of make things more just, at least, at least so that I would think things are just, why doesn't God do that? And I, my viewpoint is that he has done that before, and we kind of blew it. You know, here, here, here's, here's what I'm talking about. I'm, I mean, I have a little bit of a different perspective about the gar- what happened to the Garden of Eden in maybe than you would have. So I'm going to share with you which I think, um, what I think really happened there. I'm talking about the curse. You find this in Genesis chapter 3. And, and if you know the story, you know that there was um, a, a deal there where Adam's 
character failed, and Eve's character failed, and um, and so um, there's a place there where the, the curse happens. You all know what I'm talking about, right? The curse, and and I think that that, that culturally we think okay, and and. and Theologically, we believe that sin entered the world there and, and there was a curse and things are different ever since then because of that. And that whole problem will be completely redeemed and dealt with in finality um, by Jesus Christ. That's a statement of fact. It's not an opinion. It's a statement of fact. And you can see it happening around you. But there's this curse. And the common thinking is that God cursed Adam and Eve because, you know, all right, you made me so mad. You're going to pay. That's, that's kind of the, the com- common conception. I don't think so. In fact, if you look carefully, God did not curse Adam and Eve. He did not put a curse on Adam and Eve. You read the words, and I'm not going to take the time today, but go back and look. He cursed the serpent, and he cursed the earth. He changed the conditions. Before that moment, the earth was good. When God says something is good, we're going to assume that it's not full of sin and, and failure, right? Okay? So the earth was good. If you needed something, it was literally hanging on a tree. Get up in the morning, I'm hungry. Ah, caramel mocha frappuccino right there, baby. <laughs> I don't have to worry about whether I still got money on my Starbucks card. I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to get, you know, get chubby because I have too much pizza. I mean, I... I don't know. Okay, too far, Terry. All right, but the point is is that what you need was literally hanging on trees. The earth was good. And this thing happens, and now God curses the earth. And now sin is there, and weeds grow, and plants don't always produce like they have to. In other words, mankind, if you want to eat, you're going to have to work at it. Different conditions. What's, What's my view about all that? Did God curse Adam and Eve? out of anger and to punish them? No, I don't think so. I think our Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father, looked down and said, ah, I knew this day was going to come. There's character flaws in mankind. And if everything is laid out in cotton balls for, for mankind, he'll never change. I've got to be the loving parent here and put him in an environment that will induce character growth in him. Something that will induce love and joy and patience and peace and kindness and long-suffering and gentleness and self-control. And so, I think what's going to have to do that is responsibility and work. And I'm so sorry about what you two have done. You're going to have to toil. By the way, study the words. Literally, it says a woman will toil in childbirth and man will toil. I mean, it's the same word. And it's our loving father saying, I'm not cursing you. I'm going to do what a loving parent does. I'm going to work with you now over the next thousands of years. (laughs) And I'm going to help you learn to have your character shaped. And so I'm going to put you in a place that will produce godliness in you. That's what the curse was. What the world says is a curse was the loving the only loving thing that a Heavenly Father could do for kids that he loves like crazy. You and me. So, when God brings up the topic of money, 
It's not because your church has to have your money. It's not because God has to have your money. It's not because if you know, God needs your money so that he can get the G.I. Joe doll with the Kung Fu grip. Okay, God doesn't need your money to get the G.I. Joe doll with the Kung Fu grip. God needs you to be in a place where you allow yourself to be shaped. Jesus talked so much about money, more than he did about money than heaven and hell. Why? Not because he needed money, but because he knew that the environment that, that was there, that the need to work, the need to put your faith in God, was what was going to shape those character qualities that God wants to see happen in every one of his kids. Same thing you want in your kids. Jesus in Matthew uh, 6, 24, he says, nobody can serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other, despise one. You can't serve both God and money. And the sooner that you see God's actions in the Garden of Eden as the act of a loving parent and less of a curse, the sooner you will start, stop letting money be your master. Toil is not bad for you. <laughs> It's good. Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Hard work. Hard work. (laughs) Nothing will substitute for hard work. Hard work in your career. You know, hard work in your desire to provide financially for your household, your, your, your family. If you're a single adult, work hard. If you're married with children, work hard. If you're, if you're, Raising a family, work hard. There's no substitute for that. Now, if you find some way to wiggle out of that expectation and abandon life, you'll be the first one since Adam. <laughs> you will. There's just no, you know. So please, don't spend your money on, your, on lottery tickets. So just stop doing that. Take your $10, buy a loaf of Wonder Bread and peanut butter, and give it to somebody who's hungry on the roadside. That's a better place for your $10. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. You are way better off lending that $10 to God, which is what you're doing. You realize that when you help somebody who's hungry and you give to them and you, and you help the poor, you're lending to God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through the financial teaching again, but scripture says that the borrower is subject to the lender. You, you take on a special relationship with God when you lend to the poor. When you give to the poor, you are lending to God. There's an obligation between God and you. I'm not going to go there right now. I'll tempt it as I want to be, but I want you to understand that there's a place there. And giving... Giving, when we give, give away, that's what breaks the back of addiction to money, is being able to give it, give it away. The wise family works hard at financial management. For, for number four, the wise family works hard at avoiding negative conflict. Proverbs 15.4 says this. It says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And I just want to say right now here publicly in front of you, if there is you know, any gentleness at all in this tongue, Terry's tongue, I would, it would be 100% attributable to, to the work of the Lord in my life because I wasn't born with a gentle tongue. I was born with a sharp, back-sassing, <laughs> attitude-carrying, <laughs> verbal-dueling tongue. It's down in me. And, and, and the Lord has, 
shaped it, and I'm glad he hasn't bobbed it, um, but there were times that he should have. And this word tree of life here, it's a metaphor for this fulfilling, joy-producing, meaningful life. It's this picture of this happy, fulfilled, gentle existence. And Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Tender words. Good words from the heart at the right time can become a tree of life in a family. You can bless with your tongue. You can build up. You can encourage. And at times that you, you can't do that, you can be quiet and wait and pray silently. Or with your tongue, you can lash out. You can tear down. You can lie. And all of that breaks the spirit. That word perverseness there, it's literally crooked. Um, saying things that aren't true, or, or distorted. It's, it's saying things that aren't accurate, taking someone else's words, for example, and twisting it to mean something different, and you know that's not true. That's what that word perverseness means. And notice that it, what it says it does. It says it, it, it breaks the spirit. It shatters it. It wounds. Maybe you've thought to yourself, you know, what's the problem with my marriage? Why can't I connect with my son? Ask yourself the question. Do they have a wounded spirit? When, when, when a person's spirit is wounded, you know, it closes up. These walls go up, and, and, and they back away from you. By the way, it's not right to camp out around the campfire of a wounded spirit. If you have a wounded spirit, seek the Lord and say, God, help me deal with my wounded spirit. I want to I be open back up. And I want to be able to take risks of being hurt again because I want to be tender before you and people. If you're wondering why you can't touch and connect to a, somebody specific, you may ask yourself the question, do they have a wounded spirit? And then ask the really tough question, do they have a wounded spirit because of something that I've said? And you might say, well, Pastor Terry, I don't want to have any wounded spirits in my family. Okay, so here are five words, five ways to be a tree of life with your mouth to people around you. One, a word of regret. Go to somebody and say, I- I'm sorry. And be specific. You can't just say, I'm sorry, that somehow is a catch-all. Be specific about what, you, what you're sorry about. Two, a word of responsibility. You know, it's my fault. I don't have any excuse. I don't have any explanation. That's being a tree of life. You say that to somebody. Number three, a word of hope. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try to be more patient. I'm going to try to listen to you better than I have before. Number four, a word of commitment. I'm here for you. We're going to get through this together. Nothing's going to change my love for you. Nothing. A word of, of commitment. That's a tree of life in your home. You know, go to your children and and say, nothing you could do would make me stop loving you. Nothing. They need to hear that. They need to hear that. And and don't worry about, well, if I say that to my kids, they'll take advantage of me. I want to tell you, most people would tell you that telling your children that nothing they could do would make you stop loving, most people would tell you they will flourish in that kind of an environment. Commitment, tree of life. And the last one, a word of affection. I love you. Just be affectionate. I love you. It's foolish lips that say, hey, I told her I love her, and if I change my mind, I'll let her know. There's an old poem. um, 
And it rings in my soul every once in a while because I tell Lisa this a lot. I do. I love her. I miss her. I can't stand when she's away. She's a women's retreat. It's a God thing. And I can hardly wait to have her back. But I remember this, this, this poem that goes in my mind from time to time. Do you love me or do you not? You told me once, but I forgot. It speaks to the need humans have to be told something we already know or maybe we don't. I love you. Now, a lot of people in some generations say, well, I do love my kids a lot, but, you know, as I was raised, it wasn't the culture of my parents to tell me I love you, so I didn't have it, and I really don't know how. Here's what I have to say to you. Do you want your kids saying that 20 years from now? Break that chain. You be the solution. Break the chain. Find past the awkward moment and look at your kids and say, you know, I really love you. And I know I haven't always said it to you. I'm not good at this. I'm going to be better, but I do. I love you. I love you. Plant a tree of life in your home. Last proverb and we're done. Proverb 26, 13 says, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. This is a lazy person making an excuse. You know, hey dad, I know you're tired. It's been a hard day at work, but did you notice your daughter needs you right now? Could you get up out of the couch and help her? And his answer is, I would, but there's a lion in the streets. There's a lion in the road. Is there a lion? There's no lion in the road. And you can't control everything in life, but you can give yourself to them. You can give this all you've got. You can work hard at your marriage. You can work hard at parenting. You can work hard at your finances. You can work hard at at avoiding negative conflict in your life. You can work hard at those things. And lean into God for this. I'm telling you, lean into the Lord. Let the wind of the Holy Spirit fill your sails. You know, picture this sail hanging. and, And as you say to God, you know, God, I really want to be better at this. Picture this. This could be prophetic. I don't know. But picture these, these sails all of a sudden going. They taut, They get taut and fall. And motion starts to happen. Not because of your efforts. But you, you're, the first step of, of hard work here is the willingness to happen in your heart. And God will fill those sails for you. And God will help you. And then you can get out and paddle with, paddle with all your might. Faster, God. I want to move faster in this. You can do that. Work hard. And God will bless you. Work hard. You'll be blessed. It's the way of wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, I want to just thank you for um, just the practical, the practical fullness found in, in, in the book of Proverbs. But Lord, I'm concerned about one thing, and that is that you would protect us from thinking that good things get accomplished because we know what your word says. Solomon, who wrote most of this, he obviously knew your word, but he didn't apply an awful lot of this. And his life was many times a mess. He knew it, but he didn't apply your word. I, Lord, protect us from that. That's a, that's a trap to think that just because we know your word. But your word also says that we need to do it. Forgive us, Lord, when we fall short or where we're focused on ourselves and times where you call us to to work hard at something. Fill us with, with, Lord, with your spirit. I want to pray right now and ask, I want to ask for something that's maybe unexpected for some in this room. And I'm not asking for, for anything specific. I don't have anything in mind, Lord, except this. Your word talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we need that in our lives. We need a sensitivity to the voice of your spirit, but we need also the supernatural to be at work in our lives. I ask, Lord, for you to pour out the gifts of your spirit upon people 
that we might somehow find ourselves being the tools of heaven as we walk among each other, that there would be prophetic words, that there would be words of encouragement, and there would be words of building up, that there would be words of wisdom and words of faith, that people would lay hands on each other, and that as we choose to work, Lord, in, in cooperation with your spirit, that the sick would be made whole, the brokenhearted would be encouraged, that there would be the faith and there would be faith present to do miracles. I pray, Lord, and ask God for that. I just ask for that for your people in this place. And I recognize, recognize the truth, Lord, that, that work won't save a single person. There is no quantity of work I can do or the combined work of everybody in this church or everybody in the city or everybody in the state that could save a single person. It's a sovereign act of Almighty God. So, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that it's not by works, but it's by grace that people are saved. I'm grateful for those moments during worship where you offered salvation, where we slowed down. I know your spirit was saying, give people an opportunity, and I know there were hands that went up. While we're praying, church, keep your eyes closed for just a moment. I just would say, if you responded to the Lord and said, yeah, I want to have a right relationship with the Creator, I want to open my heart to life forever, I, I encourage you after church, there are going to be people up front that will be praying with people for whatever reason. If you need prayer, go up there. But if you raised your hand and said, yes, I want to do that, I encourage you to go to those people and let them pray with you. Nothing spooky will happen to you. Someone who cares about you will just pray with you. That's all. And if you haven't made that decision, I encourage you now to say, yes, I'll open my heart to the Lord and then go tell those people, um, hey, pray with me because I open my heart to the Lord. So Lord, thank you for salvation and thank you for grace. Now, one more thing, church. Um, you can look up. In the name of Jesus, I ask those things, Lord. You can look up. Um, I have a video that's going to be a few minutes, but it talks a little bit about shoeboxes, and I hope you enjoy it. And then after church, that you go get a box. Go get a shoebox.